Hello and welcome to the Hormones in Harmony podcast. I'm your host, Vivian Allred, naturopathic nutritional therapist and hormone enthusiast. If you want to learn how to rebalance your female hormones, regulate your menstrual cycle and reclaim your vitality, then you are in the right place. Each week I will be delving into different conditions such as PCOS, endometriosis, infertility, hypothyroidism, acne and hair loss. Stay tuned for interviews with expert guests, Q&As and solo episodes that are all intended to help you move from hormonal chaos to hormonal harmony. If you'd like to submit a question for me to answer on the podcast, then you can email them to hormonesinharmony at gmail.com. The information shared on this podcast is intended for educational purposes only and is not designed to replace the advice of your health practitioner. That said, let's get into today's episode. Hello, so we're going a little bit sciencey today into the subject of sulfur, sulfur metabolism, sulfite toxicity, hydrogen sulfide with expert Dr. Greg Nye. So Greg Nye is a naturopathic physician and acupuncturist graduating from NUNM in 2001. Dr. Nye is a co-owner of Immersion Health in Portland, Oregon, where he has a primary care practice as well as a speciality in naturopathic oncology which is treatment for cancer. He has done extensive research, writing and speaking on the relationship between dysfunctional sulfur metabolism and the development of SIBO, inflammatory diseases, cancer and other chronic conditions. So this was actually a big piece for me and my health journey, as you're probably aware that I had a lot of food sensitivities and weird systemic reactions with my gut and my hormones and addressing the sulfur piece has been a really key factor. And in this episode, we discuss the importance of sulfur, particularly for gut and hormone health, even chronic diseases like cancer and why it's so important. Things that can interfere with proper sulfur metabolism. These include genetics and environmental toxins, signs that you might have low sulfur levels and or um, high sulfite or hydrogen sulfite toxicity. Supplements, foods and nutrients that could be helpful for sulfur metabolism and his new book, Devil in the Garlic, should be out in 2020. So we hear of these foods like kale and garlic and eggs being amazing for health, but for some people they can actually be pretty symptom producing. So I'm excited for his book to come out, so definitely stay tuned for that one. And he is an expert in this area and I just had to have him on, selfishly for my own benefit too. So I hope you enjoyed the episode and get as much out of it as I did. Okay, so Greg, could you first tell us a bit about yourself, how you got into the health and nutrition world, and particularly interest in sulfur? Oh, wow. That's, um, yeah. So, well, how did I get in health? Um, I initially, so in my uh, my training or my uh, school, I did a master's program where I studied the politics of medicine, really, and learned a lot about alternative medicine at that point. I was in a humanities program and you can't really do a whole lot with a master's in humanities. And so I was then a professor there turned me on to naturopathic medicine. And I thought, oh, that sounds like a great way to apply what I've been learning. And so that kind of directed me into naturopathic medicine, which for me has been like an ideal profession. Um, And so, okay, so did that schooling, did a concurrent master's in Chinese medicine, and then got into practice in 2000, early 2002. and, and I guess, you know, I would, you know, like anybody, when you first get into practice, you don't really know what you're going to be focused in. But, you know, spent a lot of years early on treating a lot of chronic Lyme disease. And that was kind of my gig, um, as well as some other things. And then 
and it's been about 10 years, 10 or 11 years now um, that I then had this idea that I really wanted to focus on cancer because I didn't really see anywhere in Portland that people needing what I felt were some very viable alternative cancer therapies. I didn't see that offered around. And so um, I was working at the time with a nutrition therapist, Maria, um, and I just threw a book on her desk and said, could you learn about this? And she said, yes. And so we, since that time, she and I have done a lot of collaborative work around just treating cancer. So that was a big focus. And then just on the sideline, so cancer has been really my clinical focus since that time. And then I just happen to be geeky and I just love reading and researching. And, and uh, at some point I came across an article by this MIT researcher, Stephanie Seneff, um, and she, it just blew me away what she was saying in this article. And so as I tend to do, I sent her an email and just said, that was an incredible article. That led to several conversations and, and, and then stemming from that, she and I have since collaborated on some papers uh, that we published that I'm sure will come up in the course of this discussion. Um, and you cannot really have any conversation with Stephanie without talking about sulfur and about glyphosate. And so those two topics became not only the focus of the papers that we've written, but also just kind of have informed my own clinical practice. And so Maria and I developed then a low sulfur protocol for people that we thought maybe have a problem processing sulfur. We started putting people through this protocol and it, I'll have to say it has been the most shocking um, revelation of my clinical work, seeing how many different types of problems resolve once we get people's sulfur metabolism working the way it should. Um, really, it just covers so many different kinds of problems that people have, symptoms that people have, and sometimes they've had it for decades, and they just resolve quickly. Now, it's not everybody, you know, it doesn't fix everything, um, but for the people that it works for, it typically works dramatically well. Um, so I've just, you know, over the years in working with Stephanie and just on my own have just continued to dive into this and really wrap my brain around that. I mean, it's a ridiculous how complicated sulfur metabolism is. I mean, it's, it's really crazy. And even, I mean, I would say Stephanie's probably one of the most knowledgeable people there is about sulfur metabolism. And it's almost on a daily basis that she and I are discovering some amazing new thing that we didn't know before. So um, anyway, that's kind of the long story of how I came into this topic. Yeah, and I definitely want to go into all of those areas that you've mentioned, the connection to certain health conditions, maybe symptoms that people can experience. But let's start off with what exactly sulfur is. So let's start at base level, what is sulfur and why is it so important? So sulfur comes into us in various ways. We need a lot of sulfur all the time. Um, and just to put this in perspective, uh, iron, which we all are familiar with being iron deficient, an adult has around three and a half to four milligrams of iron total in their body. Sulfur, an adult has around 120 grams of sulfur. I think I said, I said 120 grams, it's 120 milligrams. Mm -hmm. um, but the point is that it's vastly more than yeah. iron. 
So we need an enormous amount of sulfur all the time. And the reason is because all of our connective tissue, all of our hormones, all of our uh, cell surfaces, everything is covered with sulfur molecules. So we, everything gets sulfated. The problem is we're not, or not a problem, we're not eating sulfate, SO4. We're eating other forms of sulfur um, it, and in many different forms. But a large portion of the dietary sulfur that we take in has to get converted to sulfate because sulfate is the magic that provides negative charge throughout the body. So in order to get from dietary sulfur to sulfate, we have to go through these enzymatic transformations. Got to break it apart and then reassemble and all of that. That's all great, except when it's not. And when it, what happens is there are various issues that will, that will interfere with our body's ability to convert dietary sulfur in its various forms into sulfate. Glyphosate is one that, you know, interferes with that in many ways, but there are others. There are genetic reasons, there are nutritional reasons. Um, so there are these things that can interfere with that process. And when there's an interference with the process, our body has to figure out another way of getting sulfate. It's got to, it's got to do a workaround because without sulfate, it all falls apart. We do have a workaround. It's the only problem is that the workaround causes symptoms for us because the workaround means that from that dietary sulfur, our bodies will generate hydrogen sulfide, which is a gas, and it produces sulfite, SO3. SO3 can be, can be converted to SO4, which is great because then we get our sulfur, our sulfate, but SO3 sulfite as many people know, is quite reactive. It causes all kinds of you know, headaches and anxiety and all kinds of things. Probably an even more um, prominent thing that we're producing would be hydrogen sulfide, which is H2S. Um, and so hydrogen sulfide can be generated in our cells. It can be generated in our guts by bacteria that turn dietary sulfur into that. That's good from the body standpoint because hydrogen sulfide can be converted to sulfate. But the problem is that hydrogen sulfide causes lots of symptoms. And those symptoms are very wide ranging. Um, they can be gastrointestinal and so SIBO and irritable bowel disease. Um, any inflammatory bowel disease is I mean, it's well known that they produce those conditions. There's a lot of hydrogen sulfide being produced in those conditions. Um, but then hydrogen sulfide is a gas. And so it, it bubbles into the, into the circulation where it now has access to the body. Um, and as a gas, it is a gazotransmitter, which is analogous to a neurotransmitter like dopamine, serotonin, those things that we are more familiar with. A gazotransmitter simply means that it's a gas doing the same sort of activities. So hydrogen sulfide now in the bloodstream, when it gets to the brain, it has a number of effects there. At a normal low level, it is very important for memory formation, for concentration, um, for the balance of the autonomic nervous system, so sympathetic and parasympathetic balance. But now, in situations where we overproduce hydrogen sulfide, 
we now have too much of it in our in our brain and it causes impaired concentration impaired memory formation causes anxiety and panic and it can not everybody has these problems but those are some things that it can cause it can also um uh, sulfur issues can also lead to just systemic inflammation because in order to convert hydrogen sulfide to sulfite, you actually need an inflammatory process. You have to oxidize the hydrogen sulfide, oxidize it up to sulfate. And so inflammation can be an, adapt, an adaptation to allow for the production of sulfate. So anyway, I can go on changes forever. <laughs> no, but, I love it. I'm yeah. Trying to tie this all together into how these um how the sulfur dysregulation leads to many, many systemic symptoms. Mm. So can the symptoms of low sulfate or low sulfur intake be the same or different than high hydrogen sulfide or high sulfites? Um, they, do they cross over or are there any specific yeah, um differentiators? It would be really challenging to eat a diet that is low enough in sulfate or low enough in sulfur that you would end up with um, any of these problems. Okay. The thing is, so something to keep in mind in terms of these um, sources of sulfur, there are two. There is dietary, and that includes water. Many people who get well water, there are many people whose well water has very high levels of sulfate. And in fact, that has been linked to some problems. Um, now, it's also linked to health benefits. There are spas and everything that have high water high in sulfur that can be good if you're soaking in it. Um, so there's dietary food and drink. And then the other source of sulfur for the bacteria is our mucous membranes. So our mucus is mucousy, it's stringy because of the sulfur compounds that are in it. That's what makes it the, the consistency of mucus. So that stuff is flowing all the time, right? It's always kind of moving and getting down to our guts and ultimately gets digested. And so there's a recycling of the mucus. And in fact, the compounds are called sulfomucins, which are embedded in the mucus. So as long as we are producing mucus in some way, those bacteria in our gut are always going to have a source of sulfur that they can turn into whatever they need to, whether it's sulfate or, or maybe it's hydrogen sulfide and sulfite. Um, so it, it is in many ways impossible to do a no sulfur diet because of that source of sulfur that's always available. Mm -hmm. Another any tests that can be done to determine whether someone's low in sulfur? I'm guessing it's not really a blood test that's done. What about a her tissue mineral analysis? Because that's sometimes listed as um, a mineral that can be checked on that, or is that not highly accurate in your opinion? Yeah, I um, have not found a test that I feel like is reliable. And certainly, I mean, and this is true across the board for any kind of food issue, no test is as reliable as an elimination reintroduction. There's just not. Um, and that's, so with sulfur, I mean, there are some sulfur compounds that can be found in the blood. Um, cystathionine, for example, um, 
but I personally don't rely on blood tests for this. If somebody matches up on, on at least a few of what I would consider the most uh, prominent kind of symptoms that people have when they have a sulfur issue, if they have those, I get them over to see Maria. She gets them on the protocol. You know, I, I set them up on the, the various nutrients I think they need for that protocol. She sets them up on that diet process. We give them two weeks and uh, we just see what happens. And some people are just annoyed at the end of two weeks that we had them do this process because they didn't really notice anything. And But there are a decent number of other people that are telling us, oh my gosh, my migraines went away, my hot flashes are gone, my gut feels so much better, my, you know, whatever. Um, so yeah, it's just the, the test is to do the, the protocol. Mm. And I'm guessing you have more people with sulfur issues coming to you to work with you as a, as a patient, but how prevalent do you feel like this is in just the general population? Oh, I think it's very widespread. Um, I think it is, it's kind of an elephant in the living room that no one is seeing because it's so embedded in, um, so sulfur, it makes sense that people are having more and more problems with sulfur metabolism. And the reason for that is because sulfur, it, its claim to fame is that it binds things. So if you go in any store and look at their metal detox, you look at any of the detoxification products, they all contain sulfur. Because sulfur, that's what it does. It binds up. So lipoic acid or methionine or glutathione or um, uh, NAC. NAC and yeah, MSM, hmm. all these sulfury compounds because sulfur does really well when it's involved, when it's in the liver doing its detoxification thing, which is great. That's what we want sulfur to be doing, binding up things there. But the problem is that we have sulfur everywhere. Sulfur is distributed throughout our tissue. All of our connective tissue is sulfated. And so if sulfur in our periphery starts binding up, because now we're exposed to so much crap, right? We're, I mean, all of us are exposed to chemicals and I mean, there's so much stuff that we can't, we can't avoid anymore. And that stuff is constantly in circulation and has the opportunity to bind sulfur in a distributed way. It's no longer just passing through the liver, but it's now distributed. And so as our world becomes a more toxic place, then we are now have the potential to be binding up these compounds that we're exposed to. And when we bind them, it alters the charge on the sulfur. And you have to maintain the negative charge on sulfur because if sulfate is not around to do what it needs to do in providing that negative charge, the effect of that is to allow the water in our bodies to lose structure. And that is, um, it's the structuring of that water that is one of the most critical aspects of, of the role of sulfate in the body. In fact, I, I think a case could be made that it is the crux upon which everything else rests. Um, and we actually, there's an article we have coming out. I think it's going to be out. We were told by the, um, by the end of the year, anyway, it will be published when me and 
Stephanie wrote together, which really details, I think for the first time, um, that we brought together all the different um, factors that come together that 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 illustrate how um, heparin sulfate, which is this densely sulfated molecule that is found throughout the body, how heparin sulfate, uh, the way it is, um, the way it's regulated throughout the body, and the role that it plays in organizing what's called interfacial water or the water in our bodies that is that bumps up against cells and other linings. Um, it really, I think, illustrates all of that and kind of the key nutrients that are absolutely necessary to have around to be a part of that. Uh, and also, of course, there's a whole section on how glyphosate just wrecks that. Mm -hmm. So I'm guessing the heparin sulfates very important for things like the gut lining integrity and joints and skin health everything Absolutely. yeah okay everything yep it's everywhere yeah it is um in fact not only is it providing a negative charge um but uh so heparin sulfate is incorporated into what are called proteoglycans so there's the glycosaminoglycans or proteoglycans that make up our connective tissue like the stuff everything outside of a cell and in fact many of them plunge into the cell. And so they stand like a forest on the surface of cells and they, they are touching the surrounding connective tissue. And, and the way that the proteoglycans get sulfated, get um, positioned with heparin sulfate is, an, is a coding system that is entirely separate from the coding system that is built into the DNA. And in fact, it has been said that the code, coding system on the surface of a cell, which is really all about how heparin sulfate gets populated on these um, other molecules, that system carries more information than the DNA does about how a cell is going to behave. And so if you mess up that either the supply of heparin sulfate or if you have some kind of toxin that binds to it at the cell surface, you're messing up a, an enormously important coding system that regulates cell division, um, that is required for water structuring and for ion transport and all kinds of things. And so heparin sulfate is enormously valuable. So would that be similar to epigenetics, meaning that we all have genetic SNPs or mutations, but it's the environment that's the trigger? Yes, um, yeah. it is an, a whole epigenetic coding system. Okay. Uh, so, and, and it's unfortunately has not been, I mean, there have been a lot of studies published on it, but it is a coding system that is so crazy sophisticated that there's not really any deep understanding of exactly how that coding system works. They just know that it's a coding system. So yes, this is being passed along outside of the DNA itself. So by definition, it would be a whole epigenetic coding system. Mm -hmm. And just to recap, and I know that you said symptoms can be pretty systemic. They can be very random in some cases, but mm -hmm. could you just give us a classic um, sulfur, either sulfur deficient or hydrogen sulfide toxic person and what type of symptoms yep. they would be displaying? Totally. I guess first and foremost uh, are skin issues. Um, it's one of the first places that a sulfur issue will show up. 
and that is with people that have eczema or psoriasis or acne or just some people just itch. They don't really have anything. They just have a general feeling that they itch, maybe not all the time, but often. Other classic kind of symptoms, of course, any digestive funk going on. Um, that is, if they have digestive, ongoing digestive things that are not responding to other kinds of treatments, then we're asking them the sulfur questions. Uh, I mean, just exploring how much sulfur they're getting in their diet. And that is to say, do you eat a lot of garlic? Do you eat a lot of onions? Do you eat a lot of kale, uh, eggs, broccoli, cauliflower, all that stuff that is supposed to be really healthy, right? Like those are the things we're supposed to eat. And usually when I'm asking people these questions, they're saying, well, I try to, I try to get as much as I can, which that's what we would think we should do. And you should, unless you have a sulfur problem. It's not that those foods are not healthy. It's that for many people, our bodies can't make them healthy. Like we can't do what needs to be done for them to be healthy for us. Okay, so I'm getting away. Um, so gut issues are a big thing. Night sweats and hot flashes, it was really almost an incidental finding that people would come in with gut issues. Women, usually perimenopausal, would come in with gut issues. And okay, well, let's just do the low sulfur protocol and see what happens. And then on follow-up, they would tell me that their hot flashes went away completely. I distinctly remember a woman telling me she had about 30 a day and they were gone. She didn't have any more from doing this protocol, which is like, wow, like I didn't expect that actually, because I thought, well, those hot flashes are coming from something else. But in fact, it's like because sulfur and sulfate is so universally distributed in the body and plays a role in so many things, it's like there's really no system that it's not touching and not potentially very important for. So anyway, uh, so people that have hot flashes or night sweats, that is certainly a sulfury thing. Um, headaches, migraines, or even other kinds of headaches um, is another that will commonly resolve with um, when we get people on the low sulfur protocol. Uh, certainly inflammatory joint things, and that actually this is a, one paper that I was involved with, uh, with Stephanie, and there were some other authors on it, which, um, and that one in particular was about gout, which is this inflammatory process in, in the joint, usually in the big toe, but gout and, and the, I think the title points out gout and related kinds of inflammatory diseases are very much involved with sulfur and how sulfur is being processed. And I think that particular article makes a very good case that in fact, the local inflammatory process of gout is a way of reestablishing sufficient sulfur locally. And then once because gout is really a self-resolving process and nobody really understands why. Um, but if we see it as you have to create a local inflammatory process in order to oxidize hydrogen sulfide to sulfate. So if you create that inflammatory process, allow for the oxidation to happen. And there is a lot of hydrogen sulfide in the joint tissue of gout patients and in other kinds of inflammatory, joint inflammatory stuff. You create that, the body wisely creates a local inflammatory process, restores the amount of sulfate that's needed locally, and then you can 
let the information go. You don't have to maintain it. Now, what happens if, for whatever reason, we're in a we're in a condition where we can't we can't get the sulfate supply restored because of some kind of exposure that we've had in the past, like glyphosate is just hanging out in our system, messing things up, or maybe some nutritional issues that are not allowing for um, the whole process to work. Well, then you got to turn it into a chronic inflammatory thing. It's not going to stay a, an acute issue that resolves on its own. It then becomes chronic. So, um, and that is something that we see clinically that people um, often who have some sort of chronic inflammatory issue happening, even people who are on pain medications, opiates for like chronic neck pain or back pain or whatever, there have been those cases where they get on a low sulfur, the low sulfur process that we put people through and they get off their pain meds. They can stop their pain meds as long as they don't, um, don't get a re-exposure to the particular, you know, we do a, 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 a staggered reintroduction of the sulfur foods to see if there's any particular foods that people have a, a dramatic response to. And I can tell you that garlic is by far and away the top one on the list that people tend to have a problem if they're going to have a problem. Now, other people, it's onions or it's uh, eggs, another that's not uncommon, eggs and some people you know they kind of oddball you know brussels sprouts or something but for the most part um the largest portion of people will be captured by um garlic onions eggs or kale those are tend to be the most reactive so we bring those in one by one and we just look for symptoms to return each time we bring them in and it's not uncommon at all that, oh, there's my migraine when I reintroduce garlic, or there's my gut problem when I reintroduce kale, or whatever. Yeah, and like you said, these are meant to be the healthiest foods ever, and they're promoted, and it, yeah. you're, instead of addressing symptoms and treating symptoms like we tend to do even in the more nutritional and naturopathic side of mm -hmm. medicine, Absolutely. Um, would kind of doing the same thing as conventional doctors with just treating a symptom or a condition like SIBO, for example, or hot flashes, just giving them a herb or giving them a supplement instead of a medication. But we should be looking at why is this reoccurring? Why is this a problem in the first place? And actually get into the root of the problem, which could be this sulfur issue. And the fact that you're saying it's very prevalent is interesting and eye-opening. And I'd never heard of the you would never think the connection between something like hot flashes would be connected to sulfate in the body, but because it affects the whole body, it could affect literally every system. And I think some people have heard of sulfation in terms of hormonal health and hormones like DHEAS, DHEA sulfate. What exactly does that mean? And how does sulfate help with liver and the detoxification of hormones? Yeah, so um, big, big topic. Um, so hormone, there are two ways of thinking about a sulfated hormone and keeping in mind that all steroid hormones get sulfated. So estrogen, testosterone, um, DHEA, cortisol, they all get sulfated. And um, others do as well. Thyroid hormone is sulfated. 
uh, melatonin in the brain is sulfated. So sulfation is, in the conventional view of things, DHEA, as you mentioned, DHEA sulfate is considered to be the inactive form, and then it becomes activated when you get that sulfate taken off. And that is true. There is, there is a difference in their activity. However, a better way of thinking about it is that these hormones are getting sulfated in the liver. And the sulfate, that sulfation is a way of transporting sulfur to the, to transporting sulfate to the periphery, to the cells that will need it to do what they're doing. And so you sulfate estrone, for example, and estrone sulfate, it makes it out to cells. Cells take it up and they pluck the sulfate off. Now they have sulfate that they can use for sulfate things. And now they have an active form of estrogen, which it's kind of a brilliant system for transporting sulfate around. And in fact, if hormones are not appropriately sulfated, like melatonin in particular, it doesn't work the way it is. If the sulfation process doesn't work, then the hormone system overall starts to break down. So the sulfation process is really critical for the overall hormonal balance. And in fact, with DHEA, you can do studies and there are, there are clearly problems, symptoms and, and pathologies associated with an imbalance in the ratio of DHEA to DHEAS. Um, and in, I think in some ways, DHEAS is a kind of a proxy for being able to assess how well somebody is, is able to sulfate. If they don't have adequate amounts of sulfate, then you may well see a reduction in DHEAS in relation to DHEA. Mm-hmm. We can sometimes see that on a Dutch test as well. Um, I tend to use that test with some of my clients and it does show total DHEA production and also DHEA, DHEAS levels. So when they're kind of pointed in the opposite direction, it, that can indicate issues with sulfur metabolism. Yeah. Um, so very interesting. And what about histamine-related disorders? So mast cell and um, those types of issues. I, I know a lot of my clients also deal with these and something that I've struggled with as well. And the heparin sulfate that you mentioned before, I've heard of that being like a mast cell stabilizer. Can you talk a bit more about how maybe sulfur is impacted with the immune system and balance and, with that. And I, you know, I'll just tell you up front, this is a topic that I'm, I'm this close to diving really deeply into. Um, it's not something that I, I can speak to it kind of in a general clinical way. And if you would ask me two weeks from now, I can tell you a lot of the background of what I'm about to say. I know that clinically there, I have had many people come in who say that they have a histamine issue. And these are people who, who are coming to me kind of knowing that I do some, something with sulfur, but not really knowing the whole gig. And so they come in saying that they have a histamine issue. I say, well, how about this? Let's do a low sulfur trial. And there's, an, there's a lot of overlap between the sulfur-related foods and histamine foods. And so I tell them, let's forget about your histamine issue, but follow really closely the sulfur protocol that Maria has put together. It is not uncommon that people find that when they do their, 
low sulfur protocol, they don't notice reactivity to the histamine foods. So meaning that if they have a histamine food that's not a low, that's not a sulfur food, you know what I mean? So there's an overlap between histamine and sulfur. But if they have a histamine food that's not an overlap between with sulfur, they don't react to it. And so really what seems to me to be happening in those people is not that they have a histamine issue, but they have a sulfur issue that looks like a histamine issue. And histamine, I mean, the symptoms can be very similar in that histamine, you know, you get flushed and red and you can get anxiety and headaches. Um, uh, sulfur, sulfur impact on the heart is kind of interesting in that I would say more commonly sulfur is causing a slower heart rate and lower blood pressure. And so people will, oh yeah, they get dizzy when they stand up or they just, you know, they'll say, yeah, I've always had a low heart rate and my mom is the same way and, and all that. Um, while more commonly histamine issues have a rapid heart rate and higher blood pressure. Now that's not any kind of definitive way to distinguish between them, but those are the kinds of things that clinically you want to explore. Um, and of course, we're asking, do you react to sulfur drugs? Um, which is you know, obviously a, a flag in the sulfur camp. Um, so it is challenging to distinguish the, the two, and there are certainly people who, who are clearly reactive to both. Um, my own belief is that, of course, they're reactive to both because there's something underlying that feeds both. And I am absolutely confident that glyphosate is a significant contributor there because we're all exposed. All of us, no matter how well we're trying to eat, we are all exposed to glyphosate. There are studies that will show that glyphosate has its impact on cells, even at the level of parts per trillion. This is crazy. And that particular study was looking at the ability to increase proliferation of breast cells, breast, can breast cancer cells. And so glyphosate at parts per trillion will stimulate cell division. Now that's scary because at least in the United States, I can't, I don't know other places around the world have different standards, but in the US, we have some foods that it's allowed to have, um, like peppermint leaves are allowed to have 200 parts per million. Now we're talking about like several orders of magnitude higher concentration than what has been found to stimulate cancer division. Um, and this is just built into our, into our food system, you know? I mean, there's studies that have looked at how much glyphosate is in our various whole grain products, breakfast, breakfast cereals that our kids are eating, all that kind of stuff. Even in vaccines, I mean, it's everywhere. So, um, and part of the reason it's everywhere, and this is um, something that Stephanie is really the one who kind of figured this out and, and um, in fact, we're kind of working on some papers now that are moving, kind of talking about this issue more broadly, but she is the one who really figured out that glyphosate is a, I mean, she didn't figure this part out. Glyphosate is a glycine analog, meaning glycine amino acid that is 
all over the place in our tissue. Um, and glyphosate is glycine with a sulfate or with a phosphate stuck onto it. And so the problem is if our bodies treat glyphosate as though it's glycine, we've got enormous, enormous problems. And now there is abundant evidence that that's exactly what happens. Um, and and the, the implications for health are, are so shocking for that. Um, it's the kind of thing that Monsanto would, if that became well-established, it would result in lawsuits. Mm -hmm. I mean, just so many lawsuits because it ties then to things like cancer. It ties to every, I mean, so many different pathologies when you think about the role that glycine plays um, in health. Yeah. So, yeah. And there already are there already are so many lawsuits and like billions of dollars they've had to pay out already. So I can only imagine if they were to be found out, quote unquote, what's really being driven by this pesticide or fungicide, whatever yeah. it is. For those who don't actually know what glyphosate is or Roundup is its other name, can you just explain what it is? And would eating organic be enough to avoid that? So. Um... Glyphosate, yes, as you mentioned, it's the active ingredient in, in Roundup and what are now called glyphosate-based herbicides, which are, you know, the, con, there are lots now that contain glyphosate. Glyphosate was initially, um, when it was initially discovered, this was back in the, I don't know, maybe early 70s or late 60s, it was, it was initially marketed as a chelating agent that would be used in pipes and things like that because it will chelate iron and it actually will bind many metals and include, I mean, including zinc and um, copper and cobalt and manganese and uh, to some extent magnesium and calcium. Those are lesser. So it binds those metals and prevents them from doing whatever they need to do in the body. If, Glyphosate is in the body. So initially, it was it was uh, considered a chelating agent, and then somebody figured out that hey, it actually kills weeds. Um, and so, I mean, this is all making a very short story. But in the in the mid seventies is when Monsanto first marketed glyphosate in Roundup as a weed killer. Uh, and then it was in the, I believe in the 90s that they first came out with the, with the genetically modified uh, plants that you could spray Roundup on them and it didn't kill the plants, it only killed the weeds. And that's when the, the use of glyphosate just, it went up astronomically in the United States and even around the globe, it's the most widely used. Um, and so now it is, you know, in the United States, I had a presentation recently and found this up. There's the equivalent of about six, over 60 Olympic sized swimming pools of glyphosate applied to crops in the U.S. every year. It's an astounding amount. Um, and, you know, there are other places around the world that are using close to the same. Um, so, uh, the question then, the next question is, if you eat organic, does that uh, allow you to avoid it? And the answer, unfortunately, is no. And they've done this study um, where they had 
people eating. Now, in this study, they had people eating, the quote is, predominantly organic diet, which is to say that essentially none of us can eat 100% organic, but many of us choose whenever we can to eat organic. And so in that context, they had people eating a predominantly organic diet versus people who are eating conventional diets. And they found that certainly conventional diets, those people had had significantly more glyphosate being excreted in the urine than the others. But the people eating predominantly organic still had, I would say, substantial amounts of glyphosate in their urine. Uh, so eating the organic food, it reduces exposure, but it doesn't get rid of the exposure. And the other aspect of that same study was that they compared the level of glyphosate in people who have chronic disease versus people who don't, people considered healthy. And there was substantially more, of course, in the people with chronic disease. Now Monsanto says, well, is that just, you know, is that, we don't know that that's causation. We don't know that the glyphosate caused that disease. And we don't, but if you're gonna hedge your bets, I think you'd wanna hedge them that you're not getting that exposure. Yep. Would you say that those who are sufficient in sulfate are less likely to exp um, to experience negative effects of glyphosate or uptake more glyphosate into the system? Or does it is it not a factor? Let's see. Like if you're sulfur deficient, are you more likely to uptake more glyphosate and have negative side effects from the glyphosate? Well, I think um, I think it's like a yeah, I'm not sure. So people that are, I think that when, when glyphosate comes into the system, it impacts so many different aspects of how our body is regulating sulfate. And so if somebody has modest exposure and they're engaging in some generally uh, detoxifying type of therapies, then I think that it's possible that, and they you know have genetics that are playing in their favor, it's possible that they don't then develop the kinds of pathologies that might be associated with glyphosate exposure. But if someone is you know just eating a standard American diet, which is to say a crap diet, and if they are um, you know, not taking some basic nutrients and then I think that a glyphosate exposure is going to, if not with an initial exposure, over time, it will whittle away at their body's ability to maintain that adequate sulfate production. Mm -hmm. And thus things become chronic, you know, things yeah. develop in this insidious and chronic way. And somebody just thinks, oh, well, crap, I got type two diabetes now. Mm -hmm. But what they don't know is that they develop that because their body, you know, maybe glyphosate over time chelated their manganese, and you got to have manganese in order to, in order to, um, for your pancreas to adequately generate insulin and be re insulin responsive. Maybe those two things are tied together, and we just think that well, type two diabetes—that's just what happens. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So glyphosate's one of the main reasons for sulfur metabolism issues. You've also mentioned genetics. So mm -hmm. what are the key genes involved in this that people should maybe investigate if they're thinking of that? Yeah. So I, you know, I think um, generally 
there, there's a lot of excitement right now about, you know, nutrigenomics and all that. And I do think that there are, there are ways that genetics can be stacked against people in various ways. At the same time, I think that too much has been placed on genetics and, and what genetics might explain. Um, so with sulfur, there are some, some enzymes that are probably the best well-known is CBS, which is um, cystathione uh, beta synthase. So CBS is kind of the gatekeeper between, it regulates uh, homocysteine moving out of the methylation cycle and down into the sulfation pathway. And there are some genetic glitches that can happen there um, that potentially speed up the activity of CBS. Now, I um, have looked at hundreds of genetic reports that people have done, and I don't, I don't really see a clear correlation between, between those SNPs in CBS and, and the severity or even the presence of sulfur issues. Now, sometimes it's very clear. Now, if it's sometimes clear and sometimes not, is that really CBS that's causing the problem or is it something else? And maybe it's a constellation of things. Maybe, you know, I think it's complicated. Um, so CBS, of course, I look at CBS to see what's going on there. And there are a couple of different places there that I think are meaningful. There's CTH, which is um, cysteine gamma lyase, um, which is another enzyme that is producing hydrogen sulfide um, that I think is relevant. There is uh, CDO, which is cysteine dioxygenase, I believe. Um, that is one actually that I think is probably even more relevant than CBS in that it is involved in, in the metabolism of cysteine and essentially every reaction that it does is producing uh, hydrogen sulfide. And so um, that's another one where SNPs there will are, have been shown to significantly increase production of hydrogen sulfide. The one gene that I think is probably okay, if you got problems here, you're going to have sulfur problems. And that is a, a gene called uh, SUOX, S-U-O-X, which is sulfite. Um, I can't believe I'm forgetting it's sulfite, it. Sulfite oxidase. oxidase? Yeah. Sulfite oxidase. SUOX. And so anytime that I've seen a SNP there, I've never once seen a homozygous SNP. I've only ever seen heterozygous. But when I see it, those people without without exception, and it's, I've only ever seen it like maybe three or four times, but there's, that is a very clear big deal. Mm -hmm. um, and just as a side note, glyphosate is a wreck for sulfide oxidase in all ways. Glyphosate strongly chelates iron and sulfide oxidase is a heme enzyme, which requires iron in its center, as do all of the phase one detox, the CYP enzymes, those are all heme enzymes. And so you chelate iron and you're impacting all of your phase one detoxification, but also you're impacting uh, sulfide oxidase. Um, and another, um, I mean, there's all kinds of ways we can go on this, but um, another crucial uh, nutrient for sulfur, 
sulfate, hydrogen sulfide production and regulation of sulfate is vitamin B12. And vitamin B12 is cobalamin, methylcobalamin, hydroxycobalamin. Cobalamin, of course, has a cobalt in its center. And it is also made out of porphyrin rings. And so glyphosate not only chelates cobalt very dramatically, but it also interferes with the production of porphyrin rings. And so glyphosate exposure has the potential to pretty dramatically inhibit the body's ability to generate and then utilize vitamin B12, which will ricochet through many different aspects of health, but certainly one of them is in the regulation of hydrogen sulfide and thus sulfate. Mm -hmm. I really don't know why that stuff's legal. <laughs> Pretty uh, terrible. Oh yeah, I mean, yeah, I <laughs> there's really no, there's really no there positives. Many, many countries have now, have now mm -hmm. made it, yeah. you know, they banned it, but mm -hmm. you know, I don't see that happen in the U S anytime soon. No, it's a big money making product. Yeah. So I don't see it disappearing anytime soon, which is sad. And I'm, I agree with the genetic piece. Um, I'm not really into that. I know that some people are, are intrigued in that area but i've seen people's genetics and they're absolutely perfect they're like the dream genetics but they're having all of these health issues and sure. the other way as well they have terrible genetics but they're the picture of health yeah so it's all about epigenetics and it could be insightful but it's definitely not the first place to look and a lot of these genes and enzymes need nutrients to function optimally okay. so that's the first place you need to start and you've mentioned a few of them like the iron the B12, obviously sulfur, what other minerals and cofactors are needed for optimal sulfite metabolism or sulfur metabolism? Well, the, yeah, the keys are what you mentioned. Um, certainly iron and B12. Um, molybdenum is the probably the best known. Uh, molybdenum being this funky little trace mineral that doesn't do all too many things. It really has three main things that it's working on in the body, but those three main things are really critical um, in this regard. And so, um, so in addition to being a cofactor in that sulfide oxidase enzyme, so if you don't have enough molybdenum, or if molybdenum gets displaced by aluminum or something else, then you shut down that, which means that you build up sulfite because it can't, SUOX converts sulfite to sulfate. So molybdenum is key. Molybdenum is also key to detoxification of alcohol. So it is a cofactor for al aldehyde dehydrogenase. And so if people are drinking a lot, then this trace mineral, molybdenum, can get used up in aldehyde dehydrogenase, and there's not enough left to adequately supply for sulfite oxidase. And so one of the clinical things that, we, uh, that I'm always asking about is how people feel when they drink alcohol, um, or, and just how much they drink. And of course, most people think I'm judging them about drinking alcohol, but the, really what I want to know is if someone... I mean, it's not uncommon at all. When people have some of those sulfury kind of symptoms, and I ask them how they feel when they drink alcohol, it's very commonly people will say, oh, I made like my face flushes, or I have like one drink and I feel like I've had a six pack or whatever. Like people have a dramatic response to small amounts of alcohol. Now that doesn't, it doesn't mean for sure that somebody has not enough molybdenum around, but that's certainly high on my suspicion list. 
Then the other thing that molybdenum does has to do with um, xanthine oxidase, which is another molybdenum-dependent enzyme that is responsible in the production of uric acid. And so um, one of the tests that I run pretty consistently is just serum uric acid. And there are studies that have shown that when, when uric acid levels are low, it is indicative of molybdenum deficiency. And so that is kind of a surrogate marker that can be done to assess molybdenum status. Interesting. Yeah, I've not heard that one before. And I'm a bit of a complex person um, with my health history and all of that. And I really feel like sulfur issues have been a big factor in my health, which I've only recently discovered over the past year. And hence why I wanted to have you on the podcast so I can get this information out there. Because I've been down all of the rabbit holes, like continually treating SIBO and um, my hormones have always been an issue and the more that I do to improve them, there's always something else going coming up after doing so. With the sulfur issues, um, just give me your insight as to what you think is going on if I just give you some information. So I feel like I need to continuously supplement with sulfur, um, particularly NAC or MSM and molybdenum. My body just cannot get enough. I always need them. I feel so much better whilst taking them. My skin clears up dramatically, but I react really badly to glutathione, garlic. Why do you think that is? So some, some of my symptoms are like reacting negatively to sulfur and some things are like really positive and it's like my cure-all. Why would I have those two opposites? Well, well, well. <laughs> um, knowing no more than that, um, I am not sure I can offer all that much um, intelligent about it. I mean, I think that... Um, so I feel like if I was sulfur reactive, even NAC and MSM would be terrible for me. And I feel good eating some sulfur rich foods like kale and egg yolks, but I do really badly on garlic glutathione is terrible for me. I get headaches. Um, I react so well to Epsom salt baths, which I know is one of the remedies that you promote as well. Molybdenum I love. So it's very, all very confusing. I know that you need like a full health history and everything, but I just wanted to see if you had any clinical insight as to what may be going on. Is it worth me trying a, a low sulfur protocol for a couple of weeks? To well, see? Are you anemic in any way? No. I have been previously, but working on gut infections and stomach acid, that's resolved and it's not been an issue recently. So one of the things that is really spelled out in the paper that, that will be coming out in December, or this, yeah, coming out in a few weeks, mm -hmm. um, is that red blood cells are central to the, our body's um, process for regulating the production and conversion of sulfur compounds. And in particular, garlic and glutathione have a unique role to play in red blood cells. And red blood cells are, uh, hemoglobin will oxidize garlic compounds into hydrogen sulfide. And if, um, then once you have generated hydrogen sulfide, you have to have adequate amounts of glutathione and also of vitamin B12 in order to get the hydrogen sulfide detoxified 
within the red blood cell, or it has a potential to kind of, you get, you have too much going on in the red blood cell. So um, it doesn't surprise me that you wouldn't react to MSM because the sulfur within MSM is very difficult to extract because of the nature of that molecule. So its activity is not necessarily predominantly a sulfur activity. Cysteine is also commonly not a reactive thing for most people. And I'm not sure why that is, but I think because there are so many enzymatic systems set up for the processing of cysteine, which is unlike um, the kinds of things set up for, for instance, sulfite, very different. There's only one way that the body gets rid of sulfite. Um, cysteine, there are several pathways that cysteine can go down in order to get turned into something else. Um, but in, you know, in order to, like, I don't know that I can really um, come up with a good reason why you would be reactive to just garlic and glutathione. Whenever someone is reactive to glutathione, I always as assume that there's some sort of underlying toxicity that, you know, potentially mold, potentially metals, potentially, you know, there's all kinds of things that can come into play. Um, clearly, we all have to have adequate amounts of glutathione. So if somebody is, um, is reactive to even small amounts of introduced glutathione. And I assume you're reactive both IV and oral? I've not done the IV, just the oral, liposomal. Okay. Yeah. And I've got my it. organic acid just showing that I'm low, I'm deficient in glutathione. So that's why I took it and then I reacted negatively. Um, but I do well on the NAC. Yeah, I would. Um, but uh, I did find I, out a couple of weeks ago I have mold. So I think that's the... Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, if you have mold, then that <laughs> yeah. then that's what you got to work on. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so would that sure. be impacting the sulfur metabolism in any way? Or is I it just would, like causing inflammation and toxicity? To. I mean, I treat a lot of people with mold illness, and I haven't really dug into how each of the mycotoxins specifically impact the sulfur pathways. I have no doubt that they do, yeah. um, but I just haven't haven't gotten into that yet. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm interested to see how detoxing from that, and I'm going to be moving homes and all of that next month. So hopefully I'm on the right path because I've dealt with a lot of food sensitivities in my past as well, like salicylates and histamines and oxalates and all of this. So sure. I really think that's been a big underlying factor, and I've only just uncovered that as well. So yeah, interesting to see what will change because of that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you've mentioned about your um sulfur protocol a few times what mm -hmm. exactly does that entail well we have a um i mean so i generally put together the supplement piece and that it always includes molybdenum mm -hmm. and i know that there are lots of different molybdenum supplements out there we only use one I'm not paid by them to say this, but the company is biotics and their product is mozyme forte mm -hmm. I have people chew up one tablet twice a day with food. It's We've tried other forms of molybdenum that either don't work or they don't seem to work very well. Um, or there's another one company that makes one that everybody who took it was getting, like they would get a Hertz reaction, like it was too much for their system. So the Mozyme tends to work really well. Um, so that's the the only one that we use. 
Um, Epsom salt baths, of course, are mandatory for people going through the process. Beyond molybdenum, it's really challenging to say, um, you know, uh, you know, we might do, um, there are some good homeopathic products that really work on gut uh, flora. So reestablishing the healthy gut flora um, is one approach, depending, maybe we're doing the protocol for somebody who's really menopausal or hot flash, but then we might not even be worried about their gut flora at that point. Um, there are, you know, it, for somebody like that, maybe we're doing uh, flaxseed powder regularly because flaxseed powder will suppress the activity of the CBS and the CTH enzymes and maybe slow down some excess hydrogen sulfide production in that way. And plus the flaxseed powder has got this nice estrogenic supporting effect. And so that can be great for women around, you know, if they have hot flashes or other kinds of PMS type stuff. Mm -hmm. um, or somebody's main thing is fatigue, then I'm, you know, would be thinking about um, uh, Korean red ginseng, which is another that can, can help to modulate the CBS enzyme activity. It slows down hydrogen sulfide production and, oh, no, yeah, we've got that nice bonus that it gives some, potentially some extra energy. And so that would be a way, so there's this matching up process of, of getting people on the right set. I don't like to load people up with too much, but ju just the things that support them through the process. And then I get them over to see Maria, who has written the guide that, that I'm utilizing. That's the one all my patients are doing. Um, it's available on our website, uh, immersionhealthpdx.com. Uh, and there's a shop there and the guide that, that she, she's going over with, I mean, she's got other tips and tricks and ways that she customizes it for particular people, but that is the baseline guide that we use. Um, and the, and that also, it's going to be updated soon, but it's available as it is. There's a guide and there's also a picture guide that she put together. Um, the picture guide might be more relevant for people here in Portland, Oregon, um, because the products in the picture guide you can find in the stores around here. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know how, how, um, how much these products are distributed around, yeah. but many people, it just shows people look for this product. Mm. And so, um, so the guide is out there and that's available. So we get people doing those two things. Another thing, you know, a plug that I'll put in is that I have written a book, um, which will be coming out. I think it'll probably be out within the next, uh, I'm going to say three weeks or so. Um, hey, cool. Um, that kind of explains all of the, the sciencey stuff. The first four chapters or three chapters are kind of dense science, not dense, but it's more sciencey. But then once you get past that, it talks, you know, you get more and more into, I encourage everybody to read, the, there's a whole chapter on glyphosate. And then the later chapters are really leading people through the protocol or talking about the protocol and the different kinds of supplements. The book is called um, The Devil in the Garlic. Um, so that. yeah, that should be coming out soon. So that will, explains more about the protocol as well. Great. And I'm guessing the protocol has the foods to reduce and when to reintroduce them and all of that important stuff yes. yeah totally all in there yeah perfect and, I'm and, if, and of course if people want more individualized stuff i yeah. do phone consults with people mm -hmm. around the world now um and then maria does the same thing for people who want individualized dietary work absolutely and i'll put all of your show uh, all of the links that you just mentioned in the show right. notes as well so people can easily access that 
Um, and just Perfect. a couple of questions with what you've just said. Is there any reason that you have the, the client or patient chew the molybdenum? And what's the particular yeah. benefit with the Epsom salt baths? How do they help? Yeah. And so, um, so the chewing up the um, molybdenum was actually, it, I remember it Marie and I had done a presentation um, and it was, um, and the guy who was the head of biotics Northwest um, was there and we were talking to him about, about um, the using Mozyme with people. And I forget, this has been like five years ago, but I remember, you know, we were saying, yeah, it seems like it's working. And, and I remember him saying, just have your patients chew it up instead of swallowing it whole, just see what it does. And we started doing that. It was like, oh, that's totally makes a difference. So it's just an empirical finding that somehow it works better with people. And in fact, Maria did a great thing. She had somebody in her, she was doing a consult with and who just had all the brain fog and just uh, of feeling sulfury. Um, so without saying anything about it, she just had her chew up one of those Mozymes, didn't say anything except just chew this up. And after about 20 minutes of, of their conversation, the patient said, what was that you gave me? Because she was feeling like, oh, her head had cleared up and she would like now felt better. Um, so it can be a pretty important uh, supplement for a lot mm -hmm. of people. Yeah. Then, uh, with regard to the Epsom salt baths. So keeping in mind that what we're trying to do is supply the body with sulfate. And uh, there is the, if we take it internally, even sulfate, if we take sulfate orally, there are bacteria who can turn those compounds, even sulfate, turn it into hydrogen sulfide. When we do an Epsom salt bath, and there's one study that looked at this, if you put four cups of Epsom salt in the bath and you take a bath every night, the sulfate level in the blood rises every night until about on average the seventh night. And then even if you keep taking the baths, the sulfate level doesn't go any higher, which strongly suggests that there's a pool of sulfate that is needed to replenish in the blood. When we do it by Epsom salt bath and it goes through the skin, we don't we avoid the gut bacteria. And so this is a way of bringing sulfate to the tissue that doesn't have to go through um, the other things. And I've been shocked. I have gotten emails really from around the world. I mean, of course, because that's how everything is distributed now. But people telling me that just doing the Epsom salt process and their gut resolves their mm -hmm. you know, their skin gets better their yeah. whatever um and so it has been i've had a lot of feedback to suggest that it's a good thing yeah they're particularly helpful with any digestive impairments if you're taking a ton of capsules or even food you may not be fully benefiting from that so um yeah anything transdermally could be more beneficial and i know that yeah. like mothers whose children have autism find particularly great benefit with epsom salt baths a lot of the time likely due to sulfur metabolism issues. So very interesting. And that's something that I found very helpful and pretty cheap as well for the benefits that you get, which is good. Yeah. And then and there are just to, you mentioned autism and mm. Stephanie has written some great stuff that links autism to, um, 
to glyphosate and other issues that have to do with sulfur metabolism. And one of the key enzymes playing a role in autism is that PST enzyme, mm -hmm. the phenol yeah. sulfotransferase. And, and autistic kids have kind of notorious low sulfate levels and that you have to get those replenished. So mm -hmm. Epsom salt baths are a fantastic way yeah. to do that. Absolutely. And I'm definitely going to have to get Stephanie on the podcast as well, because yeah. I'm sure there's so many more subjects that we can talk about on this, yeah, for sure. in this area. Um, so just to finish up, I just want to ask a few more questions for you personally, um, just about how you stay healthy. Is this something that you're into lately? So I know that you've mentioned some of the research that you're doing and the, the book that you're finishing up on. Is there anything that you've been studying or just something in your personal life that you've been enjoying recently? Uh, could be health related, non health related, doesn't matter. <laughs> uh, things. Well, um, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm fascinated by lots of topics, mm -hmm. um, and so I um, I read extensively into um, cosmology and evolutionary biology and uh, and uh, neuroscience and and those. I mean, I'm just fascinated by it and mostly I'm interested in in the in all of these fields I'm interested in you know there's always in any given field there's kind of the mainstream way of thinking about things and then there are these other very respectable and often highly published and recognized scientists who are saying wait a minute that mainstream model doesn't really explain things very well. There are so many holes in it. Maybe this other explanation is better. Um, and that's true all the way from cosmology and Big Bang and, I mean, the biggest of theories all the way down to, you know, qu you know quantum whatever. Um, and in biological sciences, of course, it's all the same thing. And reading into genetics or reading into immunology or pick your topic, there are really challenging ideas that people are putting forth to try to explain the various ideas that the mainstream model doesn't work. So that's how I occupy my time. Mm -hmm. I just love reading about that stuff. Um, so, yeah, that's... And then I, you know, of course, I'm also studying sulfur and all that. <laughs> so you're a bit of a research geek by the sense yeah. of things. <laughs> Same here. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Second question would be, what's one herb, nutrient or supplement that you couldn't live without? This is a tricky, tricky question. <laughs> well, um, it's, it works for me, but not for you. And that is glutathione. Mm. Um, mm -hmm. I think uh, it's one that I take all the time. I take it every day. Um, and because, uh, I mean, I take a boatload of stuff. It's not that I'm just in glutathione, but if I were going to, you know, I'm going on a trip and I can only do one, I would, yeah. you know, glutathione is so important for detoxification, chelation, um, antioxidant status, all of that is, has such a broad range. And mm -hmm. Of course, even as I say glutathione, it's like, well, there's butyrate and there's CoQ10 yeah. and there's, I mean, there's all kinds of others that are all the top of the list. But, but glutathione, I think, covers many bases. Yeah, got so many benefits. Just not for me at the moment, at hopefully the moment. in the future. <laughs> yes. Is there another book or another research, research paper until yours comes out? I'm hoping that your book will be out by the time this airs. But is there an, another... Um, particular paper that you've not mentioned or just one of them in particular that you can list now that's 
maybe a, a gentle introduction into the subject of sulfur or maybe something like glyphosate that people can look into? Huh. Well, I would say probably, um, I mean, Stephanie has done so many podcasts and she has a personal webpage that's housed at MIT. And so, I mean, she has done yeah. so many interviews and podcasts and all of her presentations. She just demands everything that she does has to be um, unpaid access. So everything that she has done is available. She's probably articulated all of these issues the best. Um, there's not a particular book that I could point people to, which I guess is good for my book. Uh, so yeah, I guess um, probably I would say she's the resource that if people are willing to just put in the time and click mm -hmm. on the, the, I mean, she's all over YouTube. She's been yeah. interviewed by Mer Mercola and all that stuff. Right. So you can, yeah. you can just Google her on the podcast app or on YouTube and you yeah. can probably spend three months educating yes. yourself on yeah. all of these things. Final question. Could you just repeat again where people can find you online? Are you on social media? Um, what's your email if you're willing to give that out or is that all listed on your website? Sure. Yeah. Um, so the website is immersion, I M M E R S I O N immersion health PDX as in Portland, it's our airport, pdx.com. So from the website, there's the shop where you can buy that. And there's, um, you know, there's a way to set up consults if you want to, you know, you can schedule if you, somebody wants to do a phone consult. Um, so there's that. Um, we have a Facebook page that um, I try to get populated as often as I can. I've been a little lame about that recently, but um, for people that want to look us up, it's just looking up Immersion Health um, on Facebook and can kind of follow us in that way. Um, my email, the, my contact info is is easy through the webpage, and so there's it's easy to reach me there. Um, and what else? I yeah, that's those are kind of the main ways to get me. I think other than that, the book coming out and the article coming out, and I'm actually working on another book right now that will. It's in a very different topic. It's more. Um, uh, yeah, it's a very different topic than this, but it will hopefully come out next year. Interesting. Yeah, I'm excited to see what that will be on and I'm excited to read your upcoming book. And I just want to thank you for your time today and thank you for all of the research that you're doing and the um, interviews that you're doing and just even educating practitioners like myself on an area that's not commonly discussed. So yeah, thank you so much, Greg, for your time and I appreciate it. I appreciate you having me on. It's really been fun. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Hormones in Harmony podcast. If you like this episode, please leave me a rating and review as this helps to spread the word to other women dealing with hormone imbalances. As a massive thank you gift, I'll send you a free guide, Six Steps to Hormonal Harmony. All you need to do is screenshot your rating and review, then email it to me at hormonesinharmony at gmail.com and I'll send you the link to download this free guide. If you haven't already, check out my website vivanaturalhealth.co.uk and Instagram page at vivanaturalhealth for tons more free content and inspiration. You can also schedule a free 30-minute hormone troubleshooting call to find out the next steps to take in order to overcome your symptoms naturally. See you back here next week for another episode.